This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Uh, Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes at theplaylist.net. You can also find the episodes from our other shows there. And uh, your podcatcher of choice, just look up the Playlist Podcast Network. All right, house cleaning's out of the way. Uh, what are we talking about today, Joe? Are we, we staying in again today? We're staying out of the theater? Yeah, we're, we're talking about movies. Um, and <laughs> movies you can... Mostly, um, one of which you can find at home now, another of which you can find at home very soon, but both of which are available or will be through Netflix, who are kind of tiptoeing into the theatrical release um, by releasing both of these films into cinemas, uh, either at a sort of staggered release where they release it initially into some theaters, not many and then release it on Netflix a few weeks later with the case of uh, Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Mm-hmm. Or with the day and date release of the new Coen Brothers film, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> Almost forgot, like, le- Legend? Uh, the ta- <laughs> Tales of the Dark. Uh, um, but it's the new kind of anthology, the Western set anthology by the Coen Brothers with an incredible ensemble. And... Um, I don't know. Both of these movies uh, are, you know, like they're they're from directors that, you know, I would argue are still like event directors, you know, like the the types of films that aren't sort of hinging on an IP or like some sort of franchise that like it's around the cult of the filmmakers themselves and um, the Coen brothers certainly are of that where like every one of their films, like even though they may not like hit every time, there still is a sense of event around what they've done, what sort of new thing they've kind of like come into the world with. And Alfonso Cuaron is like, he's certainly a, a signature filmmaker who's made just a handful of incredible work that like none of which you can necessarily like I was thinking about this as we were leaving uh, Roma last night, my friend and I, about how um, you can't really take the title of like his previous hit to like from the director of you know <laughs> like to suggest what he's heading into because there seems to be like there needs to be like a thematic kind of continuation if you're going to cite one movie in order to entice audiences to go to the next like right you know with Zodiac from David Fincher you could be like from the director of seven, you know, you have, you have another serial killer movie, you know, and like that would entice audiences to go right with like him. He's made such like drastically different work all with like a, 
a humanistic touch and a, a, just a, a complete auteur's perspective. But they're all kind of, though there's like thematic through lines, you can't really pinpoint what makes one, you know, like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can look at Children of Men. Right. Like this is the director of Children of Men and be like, yeah, you made Harry Potter, Prisoner <laughs> of Azkaban. You right. can't see the through line? Like, no, uh, they're gray? I don't know. Like, um, <laughs> So with, with uh, Roma, you have, like, you know, the new work from a very signature filmmaker. And both films are kind of, like, unfortunately at this point, kind of high-wire prospects for studios. Right. You know, with the Coen brothers, you have an anthology movie, which I don't know if they've how often they've been really in fashion, but that certainly doesn't seem like something that audiences necessarily line up for regardless of the director. Right. And with TV coming in so much now, it feels like that's overtaken the anthology movie yeah. in a lot of ways. Like there's less of a need for it. Right. And, but with like the Coen brothers, like if they have an instinct to do something, there's something compelling about that. So yeah. if they want to do an anthology movie as risky as a, proposition as that might be like they're the ones that you should sort of trust to you know bring that bring something compelling when they do and so because studios are like more often than not wanting the big gambles of giant tentpole titles they want they'd rather make a 150 dollar 150 million dollar movie that makes 400 million dollars than an art house movie that costs $15 million, which is what Roma costs mm. and yields. However much it yields, uh, you know, they just want to, they want to gamble on like the high stakes and they don't know what to do with the sort of middle ground to lower ground of movies. And so that's been relegated to art house distributors. And those are getting further and further out, you know, in terms of like the theaters that are available to those. And like, oftentimes I'll look at the lineup of movies coming out. I don't recognize most of them, even if they're, they are with like actors I recognize, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, they're just, there's a middle ground that's like ceasing to exist, which we've talked about for years now in terms of like the state of the industry talks we tend to have, mm-hmm. especially with like Netflix, you know, continuing to make movies and their pedigree getting a little better in terms of like their output recently, you know, especially with like Oscar contenders like Roma. Right. Um, I don't know how much Buster Scruggs is going to, you know, compete in terms of Oscar consideration, but mm-hmm. it's certainly a Coen brothers movie. That's well enough made that like, you know, it should be critically regarded. Mm-hmm. So these movies from event directors, they typically years ago would it be a foregone conclusion that they would have theatrical releases. It's not necessarily the case anymore. And so in that sense, you, the only, not the only way, but like one of the ways that these movies can get seen is through streaming services. Streaming services are taking these directors who used to have just, they used to be able to green light movies. It's a riskier proposition nowadays. And they seemingly are letting them do whatever they want. You know, like Alfonso Cuaron wants to make a movie with Netflix. He gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to make a neorealist movie shot in black and white. And it it sort of has that sort of beautiful, languid, poetic quality of following a family on a, 
on a series of trips and their life in the city. And like, it's, it's a level of cinematic attentiveness that is lacking by and large nowadays. And it feels like such a respite and such a, like a vital breath of fresh air that like you need it. And it's like, this is the type of thing you go to the cinema to see because it's beautifully executed. And, but the only way it's getting made is through a streaming service whose like primary intention is to get people to watch it at home, either, you know, on their home entertainment system or on their laptop or their phone. Ah, uh, those David Lynch. Who's <laughs> waking on your up fucking phone. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like this weird double-edged sword that we've talked about where it's like these movies still need to get made in order to like revitalize people going to the movies. Um, but they're only really getting made by one of the main disruptors, which is streaming services. And, you know, Netflix, it's hard to gauge like what their, um, their game plan is in terms of releasing movies in limited theatrical release outside of just getting Oscar consideration, but people are showing up, you know, like Roma, Open in three theaters, two of which were in New York, one of which was in Los Angeles. And so you know, in Los Angeles, huh? Well, it's, sorry, it's worth noting that this is what three weeks before the movie does come out on Netflix, which is a first for net for Netflix. Yeah, uh, the, exactly. Yeah, but like I think Beast of the Southern Wild was one of their early no, no Beast of No, no Nation, Nation. <laughs> Beast Master Two through the Portal of Time. <laughs> was one of their first films they uh, which one was it beast of no nation fantastic beasts <laughs> okay one of the beast movies beast of no nation uh they released day and date theatrically but they've mostly avoided like in the ensuing years putting movies in theaters you know like right. they put put them in like one around town like one of which like you know like i didn't know where it was couldn't get to but yeah, like people, this this thing that they were doing when they did do it as a sort of obligatory routine, like, eh, we'll put it in one theater. And like people who don't have Netflix can go see it there. But now it's like people want to see this movie in the theater because it's it's a cinematic experience. It's beautifully shot. And it's like, it's it's something that you really need to give yourself over to like in terms of like its story getting lost in it. Um, and it's something that is missing and like rare nowadays. Mm. And so like people are showing up to see they're selling out shows like this. I saw a sold out show at the theater. It's playing at here in Los Angeles last night, had profoundly shitty seats at the <laughs> beginning of the screening, was able to move, sat on the stairs for the whole movie. And guess what? I didn't mind because like yeah. I was glad to see it on the biggest screen possible, you know, just to let it like wash over me and overwhelm me, which is, you know, like we're lucky to have movies like this still exist, how in whatever form we can get them in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people are, they're demonstrating that they're willing to show up like available theatrically, which is heartening. Roma is, is just, uh, it's this amazing contradiction. It's made for Netflix. Couldn't have come into this world otherwise, it seemed like. But yeah. 
yet it's so cinematic it belongs in that big screen um, from a company that's only interest is keeping subscribers to their streaming service. Um, so will they pay attention? Will they care? I don't know because this release by and large is, um, you know, it's, it's a term called four walling where the company in this case, Netflix is just paying the theaters to show it. And they're, they're doing right by what Alfonso Cuaron wants, wanted, he wanted a theatrical push for his movie. Uh, he wanted them to find a way to merge, to to play along with with uh, cinema chains, which he helped push the needle forward a little bit. And I just I hope that there can be a future where Netflix can do this for the movies that they deem, for whatever reason, deem worth getting that kind of release. Therefore, like the choice, we have the choice. I, you as a Netflix subscriber, I would still go see a lot of these movies from auteurs I care about in the theater I'd pay for them happily and then still get to watch them mm. in, in perpetuity on Netflix. Like that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, it doesn't seem because they're four walling. They're just essentially renting theaters to get an Oscar qualifying run for these movies. They're not wanting to report the box office. So the fact that these are selling out, as you said, like mm. they don't really want the, the industry to know that with the release of Buster Scruggs, they, um, put it in purposely in like the few New York and LA screens it was in. I think they rented just small screens, which it's like they, they didn't care if they were filling up. Netflix is a business and it's opportunistic and it'll go where the demand is. And I think that now there's, there's at least enough mounting exceptions to the rule where like, you know, a movie even within the last few years as drastically as like the industry seems to shift a movie like Mandy getting a day and date release where it's like, it was in a few theaters uh, came out on VOD simultaneously. And like that movie kept expanding word of mouth through sellout shows. And like that just, that seemed like an impossibility within the last few years. Like it just seemed to become so absolute that a movie like that would get relegated to just sort of like VOD limbo and people like people, the people who, were predisposed to liking it would support it and it would get word of mouth, like decent word of mouth. And then it would sort of sync with the rest of the VOD releases. But like that movie fought for its space and people are showing and they're showing that they want to see these movies in the theater. Right. Like Mandy, like Roma. And I don't know, we can just kind of pivot from there. Cause it seems to be like a topic that we, you know, pick up and never really put down. So it's, it's always the state of the industry talks are just never going to stop. So, but I, I do want to do that, but just maybe to button it up a little bit is cause I like what you're saying, Mandy well, and I, <laughs> Mandy and Roma, I think, even though it's still early with this release for Roma, they're great examples that like uh, an audience it has proven will show up. I think another one that felt like an early example of that, but it also had a botched release was Snowpiercer, where mm-hmm. at the time, like the Weinsteins that had it didn't want, they wanted to cut the movie and then they put it out on VOD at the same time. That movie did very well in the limited theatrical release it did. At least uh, it played at my theater in town and we did very well with Snowpiercer. So that uh, Mandy movies that people, it, it's, the audience is showing that they will co- they will come up and pay the extra money, the extra time and effort and energy it, it takes to get to the cinema to see something that like demands it in that way. And I w- it would be great because like Amazon Prime, they see the value in doing something theatrically before they stream it for life. Like Netflix could like it would, there's 
it would be nice if they played ball a little bit more and saw that value. Hopefully the the technique they're using right now to release Roma and Buster Scruggs, the sort of four-walling, not reporting box office grosses thing, maybe, hopefully that's not like a proof that they don't care and they, they just want to put it on their service. I, I We'll see. You know, we're still in such early days and this is only now a thing that's starting to shift from them uh, with Roma. But uh, I do like those examples. And I think in the end, it proves that the audience will show up for these things if you give them uh, a reason to go to the cinema. You know, if a movie demands it, people will go and find a way to, to seek it out instead of just, I feel like the lazy response is always that folks just want to stay home. You know, that's the convenience always wins out. And uh, those movies prove otherwise, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's hard being in the world, going out there, paying you know a substantial, you know, a, not an insubstantial amount of money to see it, you know, and yeah. like potentially getting garbage seats after driving forty minutes to get to the like it's a it's a world full of complications, and you know, it's people like to minimize that and um, watch a feature film, someone's work of art with uh five different tabs open so you know it's 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 up to the audience and luckily the audience is you know demanding to see things like as we've you know come to love experiencing them which is like in the dark on a big screen and i think that if we can pivot into talking about the the actual features themselves um the buster scruggs is like a, a a good example of like the the like the complications with both because mm. it's like they're the movie like the pitch in itself as like a, a west an anthology of western stories is just like that's a that's a tough sell but if anybody's up to the task I believe it's them you know and it like it literally opens up a book to start telling like this, the stories that the movie goes into. And there, there is something that's like incredibly literary about the Coen brothers, Mm -hmm. just in terms of like their writing, their dialogue. Ethan Coen had a book of short stories that were kind of like pulpy and noirish that I read whose title eludes me at the moment. But um, so like the Coen brothers, like they just have this like touch, this like literary, um, like otherworldly touch to them. And like, as with like a lot of anthologies, there's like, there's great stuff. And then the stuff that's not as great, it's still passable, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a mixed bag because not every anthology can be creep show too. It's too much of a high bar to raise up to, you know? <laughs> creep show two, like, did it best three stories and then they're out, you know? It's nice. hard. It's hard to live up to. <laughs> Um, but like there's, there's moments of like storytelling perfection mm-hmm. in Buster Scruggs that are just like, you wouldn't be able like it, this moment, this arc, this narrative in this story that's amidst other stories, like would get too diluted, yeah. um, in a feature length story. And so it's like these moments of like perfection, Amidst like, you know, not if not mediocrity, just stuff that's like not as perfect. So it's just like, I think that is all like as cinematic as the movie is, as beautifully as enough of it is shot. I think that kind of risk and that um, sense of experimentation, which they're so good at, 
almost is perfect for streaming because it's just like, oh, we're going to take a risk and like not all of it's going to land, but you know, it's going to be a fun ride throughout. And I think like that sense of, I don't know, like that, that endeavor um, is almost like perfect for a streaming service. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. And, oh, go ahead. Well, and in that, like, I think that we, we've talked about the danger of, uh, like when people start making works of art with the sort of like potential limitations of the medium in mind, it starts to sort of like actually affect the work. Yeah. But if you start making something that somewhere in your mind, somewhere in your, in somewhere in there, you're knowing that like this, this content gross <laughs> is getting consumed distractedly and dismissively there becomes like a lack of care and concern to where like there's some stuff in Buster Scruggs that like some bad green screen stuff. That's yeah. just like, I don't know that they would have like okayed this if they knew it was only going to be experienced theatrically in its initial run. Like there just seems to be, there's a freedom to streaming and that freedom also lends to like a kind of disregard and distractedness that reflects in like the sort of lesser works that Netflix has provided us with over the past couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, that's the danger. And I think like Buster Scruggs is like, <clears throat> mo- like mostly enjoyable and therefore like represents its flaws represent those lesser films, but it's, its strengths and it's like, and it's overall like high points mostly outweigh the flaws. Cause yeah. like the, like it's, it's a fun movie. It it's is like, a fun a, movie. Yeah. <laughs> like right from the start too. It's like, it's got that beautiful Cohen banter to it. Tim Blake Nelson playing the Buster Scruggs character. Um, it's like this live action cartoon that works really well in the beginning. And, uh, and that's just that first chapter, the movie I, I I think you put it really well. Like I appreciated it as a streaming movie and yeah. had like, again, I think while there are moments of beauty, you know, to it, there are just some images uh, that maybe are somewhat reminiscent of the, the beautiful imagery and true grit uh, that was made specifically for a theatrical release at that time. Mm-hmm. I got to say though, some of the stuff that I did beyond the bad green screen, sometimes I thought like the color correction looked off or uh, I believe this is the Cohen's first film shooting entirely with digital cameras. Maybe that they're mm-hmm. them and uh, Bruno Delbanel, their DP. I don't, I don't know if it's like, I just think I've, I've been told by people that make movies that lighting for digital is an entirely different thing. And I just wondered if some of it looked like there were times where I thought, man, it would go from one beautiful image to just like this, way too uh blown out like the the lighting looked off bad digital look sometimes and some of it was special yeah. effects stuff like green screeny elements you're talking about and it got me thinking about well like you know what more than 20 years ago Hudsucker proxy that almost 30 years ago that that movie has fake looking green screeny stuff but there it's sort of like of a period that they're trying to capture you know uh uh-huh. Uh, or even um, their last movie, Hail Caesar, had some uh, sort of weak digital effects in, in my memory. Like special effects are not always the Coen Brothers' strength, I guess, is part of the argument here. But 
I don't know how much intention there was to some of that stuff with, with Buster Scruggs. They're very intentional filmmakers, but there did seem like elements of this movie fell prey to what you are talking about with certain Netflix movies that like, it just seems like there's something different about the production of them where certain things get a pass that if you knew it was going to be shown, it doesn't have to do with the filmmakers knowing in advance that it's not going to play on a big screen. That's debatable because sometimes Netflix buy these things after the fact, you know? So without being able to identify what it is, I don't know, but there is some effect that seems to be happening, even with great filmmakers where uh, occasionally I thought like some of the digital aesthetic of this movie was, was underwhelming at best and sort of garish at worst. Um, But overall, I still really liked the movie and the one we're going to talk about later in the episode, Roma is like an argument against all of that because it just proves to be something else entirely its own kind of great thing. But Buster Scruggs was a lot of fun. And like, I look forward, I, that's one where I'm like, I have Netflix. I look forward to being able to pop that back on again. Cause even some of the more in insubstantial shorts that are just sort of like moments that don't really feel like even a story being told, those have mm-hmm. their elements of fun too. You know, like I would cite the James Franco, the second chapter where he robs a bank. Mm-hmm. It's okay, you know, but it has a couple visuals that I really appreciate. It has like an attack uh, between Indians and cowboys. It has this like action sequence. That's like I liked those moments. Um, and yeah, that that's even for me one of the the weaker shorts. So lots to like about this, but it's perfectly okay for me streaming from my t- television. Yeah, I think that like there's like I was mentioning, there's moments of kind of storytelling, like typical. Coen brothers stories telling perfection that's at work in this and like their, their sense of like crackling dialogue and work with an interesting ensemble. Like my favorite short, I think in it is the Zoe Kazan uh, short about like, it's essentially like if you wanted an Oregon trail movie, it was like, this is it. Um, which you might, I don't know. You might get it. Since it's an IP, you might get an Oregon trail movie eventually (laughs) with army. Or, um, it was based off Meek's cutoff. Come on, Joe. That's the IP. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that is that is an Oregon Trail, the movie. Um, <laughs> and Zoe Kazan. Be, yeah, might not be what people want necessarily, but <laughs> like that one's my my favorite, just in terms of like setting up this. Uh, like, there's there's such tremendous like heart at work in yeah. this one. And like, there's such a tenderness like between uh, Zoe Kazan's character and someone who comes to like care for her in the caravan leading to Oregon, and um, that just the sense of like uh, existential doom that looms over most Coen Brothers work. You're just like, oh fuck, oh what's gonna happen to these people? Like, you know, like when there's demonstration tenderness that that is just setting you up for some like unbelievably hilarious brutality and it builds into like genuine tension and i I think one of the most suspenseful set pieces of all of the anthology in Mm -hmm. buster scruggs and like there's just stuff like that like these these like narrative like high notes that the movie soars on and kind of guides you through its lesser moments and so yeah if it's like it's more than a mixed bag i would say so it's just like it's perfect for streaming and like give it give it a shot you know and uh i don't know if you want to travel if you if you're my neighbor and want to travel 45 minutes to see it in the theater sure it's you know yeah by all means probably you know benefit from being really loud i had to keep turning it down because you know 
gunshots and screaming probably aren't soothing to my neighbors. Who knows? (laughs) And there's a good amount of gunshots for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I liked that one a lot. That was the one where I felt like of all of them, it could have been expanded into even a great full length movie, but yeah, absolutely. But I kind of liked that every other one was like, a pure short film. My favorite is probably the Tom Waits as a prospector one sure. because, because there's just this procedural element to it. That was like, you don't see in Coen brothers movies very often. Like they actually show you the act of, it almost is like a short film that's akin to the beginning of there will be blood. But instead of digging for oil, you kind of have to see the st- Yeah. Mining for gold, right? You're just, you're seeing them, uh, you just see the step-by-step process through montage. Like I, I don't recall Coen brothers doing that kind of filmmaking a lot of the time. So that was exciting. I really like Tom Waits as the, the gold prospector in it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of, the, uh, but that one felt like a pure short, like it did not need to be expanded. It was a small idea. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely really liked the, uh, the Oregon trail one as well. Uh, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, Coen's are still, still worth seeking out. They're, they, they're not getting born with old age, it seems. Yeah, they're not getting bored with the form. Like, there still is, like, enough ingenuity and excitement and, like, something that's definitely singularly theirs, even if they move into uh, a medium that's it's got its, its drawbacks and its flaws that, and its kinks that it's still working out. So, Roma, what, what, what can we start with? Um, well... My, I didn't know anything about this movie. Essentially, um, my my friend the other day was like, "Do you think the advertising for this is doing it a disservice?" And I was like, "Having not seen them, not seen a single trailer, absolutely, I think that's <laughs> doing it a complete disservice." But like, I don't know, I don't know. Like walking in and just knowing, you know, like you use some terms like neo realist, you know, which is. You know, like films like The Bicycle Thieves uh, belong to its tradition where it's it's very stark and it's sort of uh, un- seemingly unfussed over in terms of its documentation of like a, a realistic surrounding. Mm. And uh, like with a movie like, say, Bicycle Thieves, like it was depicting the 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 perils of like poverty and trying to survive for this Italian family. And um, with Roma, like it's a little trickier um, because like this is a period piece. It's set in 1970 and the attention to detail in this movie is so insanely involved and ornate and like meticulous, but then like having it have a naturalistic look Mm. makes what's insanely complicated look easy. (laughs) And we're, essentially following the life of a nanny and a housekeeper in a sort of upper crust, richer family as she, you know, her relations to the family itself and her attempting to carve out her own personal life outside of it. And like, there are just these, like if there's a signature touch that Alfonso Cuaron is known for, Um, I'd say like one of his stunts from like children of men, like where it's this like incredibly long take that seems to have no cuts. Maybe the cuts were masked, but like through a combat sequence, which is so insanely complicated and involved and there's no combat necessarily. There's a melee, uh, in the midst of Roma, but like there are like these incredibly long tension building takes, that just like carry you through like, you know, 
what's essentially period piece set dressing. And it just looks like the era. Like I wasn't alive in 1970 in Mexico city, but like, it looks like it looks like what you assume that era looks like. And the camera doesn't, it doesn't cut and it just follows characters through this world. And it just makes it seem like it makes the incredibly complicated seem simple. Cause it's just like, Oh, it's just following these people. But imagine the sense of coordination, <laughs> the sense of like, art design and attention to detail that's at work in every single one of those long takes. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's what is like, is such an enlivening breath of fresh air for a movie like this. Like, and like, like that's why we sort of glom onto it as like, this is what's, this is a huge part of what's missing nowadays in terms of like the artistry of movies being seen in the theater. And like, I don't know. I, um, to say nothing of how just eventually emotionally devastating the movie becomes (laughs) in a relatively unmanipulative fashion, like which is another sleight of hand and an amazingly uh, complicated thing that looks simple. (laughs) Um, I think that's just like, there's, there's some quote that I'm mangling when I say that Mm -hmm. that's like, uh, might be Charles Mingus who said um, the like true art, makes the complicated look beautifully simplest or beautifully simple, something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what he does so well. And so like, that's what in in radically different films that he's made is like a signature touch of his. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you got to dig a little bit harder to find find his signature signature. or to locate his signature, which is like, it's, but it's also nice in this movie that there's kind of references to most of his films in it. You know, most of his other films, yes. like there's a nod, there's a nod to gravity at one point <laughs> film I didn't love, but you know, I can appreciate, um, from a distance for something that is like as starkly realistic as this movie is the little kind of winks and nudges and mentions of his other work is kind of nice. There's so many things about this movie that, uh, I think I, I called it like a beautiful contradiction earlier. And, and in a lot of ways, the style, the kind of movie of it, uh, the, there's so many ways that it is a contradiction. Like it is this neo-realist thing, which makes one think it has a simplicity to it. It has a, a grittiness to it or like all the things you said, unfussed over camera work. But then this movie is all done in these, oh, these extremely elaborate sequences where even little moments are meant to feel grand. And mm-hmm. it's, it's something he does with with uh, the basic elements, uh, framing a shot. So a, a car, a big nineteen uh, seventies car trying to park into a garage becomes this visual reoccurring visual motif or like a sequence in this movie, and it's uh, where it can't quite squeeze into the garage, and it's like the framing plus the sound, how close and how much we feel the rumble of the car's mm-hmm. engine, like all these things that like again, seem simple or seem seem basic, actually just make it feel like it's larger than life. And then you get the actual sequences themselves that feel like action moments uh, in a movie that is not an action movie like Gravity or Children of Men, but he stages them in that same way. It's it's thrilling. So when um, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a moment at the end on a beach that I'm not going to say much more because it should just be experienced for how incredible it is and immersive but also so moving at the same time i don't want to ruin it but like it's the sound design that makes you feel like you're there you're swimming in these waves as they're pounding against you or you're in the middle of the 
the the this student attack that happens. It's like a riot uh, or like a protest that happens, and then uh, some people are there to fight against them. And like we're just we're just in the middle of these, off to the side with the lead characters in the movie and experiencing those things. I I like I love that it was a film that always kept it from the perspective of its lead character, which is this nanny for a sort of middle-class bougie family in Mexico city, uh, with four kids and a father and a mother that are going through, uh, the beginnings of a divorce basically. Uh, and it always keeps her perspective, but we're seeing all this incredible stuff happen going on. Like she, it's not that she doesn't understand it. It's just that she's doing other things while a lot of these, these moments are happening. Um, yeah. I, I love when cinema can do that. Cause then you can like, go back and find out like, what was all that about? What was going on? Like I had questions that I wanted to search and find out about, but the movie didn't feel like it was holding things back or keeping things out. It just, uh, held strong to its POV, which I think is another part of it's like the magic of the movie. Yeah. Like you mentioning that, like these things are going on while the, uh, like the nanny, the sort of central character is, like focusing on her tasks. Like that's another point that like when things are happening to her and to the mother character, like that they're essentially through they're experiencing personal devastation through a series of scenes while the rest of the world goes about its business and the absurd noise that business creates. Like there's yeah. like you mentioned the sound design of the, the waves in that particular climactic scene, mm. but like the sound design in this whole movie is incredible yes. just in terms of like creating that noise. That's so insistent and so constant. And like, despite being kind of like, in a, in a bubble of personal devastation, like the world roars around you with its like absurdity. And like, you know, a, a person sits down on the steps after they've been abandoned while like all of the insane street noise is ensuing around them. And like, that's just like, that's a level of like, it just looks like a simple moment documented, but like there's, there's so much orchestration and so much, so much thought that goes into the world that's being built that like a, delivers this like experience of loneliness, isolation, and and ultimately like connection through those feelings. Yeah. But like it delivers this like experience of that through like incredible design on every level. Like whether it's like through the visual of like how it's beautifully shot or the sound design. And then just the performances on top of it, which are so like the main character is, you know, kind of like withdrawn and like very sweet, obviously to the children she takes care of. Yeah. But like, she kind of keeps her interior life hidden away because she like, she doesn't, she's helped. So she doesn't want to burden anybody. And then watching her experience like life's, you know, devastations and increments, like that performance, it's like a similar thing where it's just like, it looks like something so simple, but then like something so, beautifully complicated is communicated through her. Yeah. I think Quaron even falls pre- like not falls prey. There are elements of this movie that I think in lesser hands become lazy manipulation to either yeah. to add stakes to the tension or to manipulate you to feel for this character. One is like kids are in peril a couple times in this movie. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I never like have it as a, a rule myself, but a lot of critics will knock movies for that. Cisco, uh, Cisco, right? He hated that when you put a kid in peril to build up, but it's like everything is so fucking good and so elevated in this movie that 
I I feel like I'd be nitpicking if I complained about that because that stuff can happen and it's presented in a way that feels like that could have easily have happened the way it did. And the movie sort of conjures this like waking dream. It's like it's like getting to walk in somebody's memory because it feels so deeply personal and apparently a lot of this is, you know, from Quaron's memory, from his experiences. Um but yet it's it's a great example of the personal having universal qualities to it. Like the more you zero in on something that means so much to you, that specificity can have universal things where I can just take something away from it and be moved. Um, and I never felt, never felt the manipulation in this movie. All directors yeah. do that. They all manipulate you as a moviegoer, but yeah, the great ones like Quaron mask it or just, it's not the, the sleight of hand is just hard to, you don't see it so easily. The, and I, w- I was just in awe of that as the secrets are going. And then the movie starts to really have an emotional pull. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you've talked about the slow cry or before or something you've referenced before. Like this was a movie that just like kept like, sucking the tears out of my face like I just could not stop at times um and it's a lasting it's a lasting sentiment it's a lasting like emotional thing to go through and yet he's doing all this in a movie that feels like it's on the scale this movie feels bigger than like the most expensive movies that are made every year you know Roma you said it was 15 million dollar budget that blows my mind because this feels bigger and it proves what's lacking when we say, like, I know we've talked about it. We're like Marvel movies. They feel like they're just like TV movies. They don't, that they're expensive. A lot of big budget movies feel this way to me now. They're expensive. There's special effects, but like they don't feel big. They feel small the way they're sort of framed and the filmmaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it just has a sameness to it. This movie just stands out because also because it's so large yet the story doesn't feel the need to be like the world is ending. It's not about that. It's like, it's that specificity that feels grand. And, um, that is entirely unique in the, in our sort of current landscape of movies right now. And, you know, that alone I think would get us excited to champion the movie. But again, I don't think it would work without the real emotion and the like, that that just the emotion that pulls you through it makes this movie like mean something it it gives you something back yeah there's like there's also the sense of uh kind of a lot of modern spectacle related movies feeling rushed and distracted yes. like trying yes. to cram a bunch of exposition in that doesn't lead to any sort of satisfying narrative arcs or anything it's just like cramming a bunch of information in. so there's like room and nuance getting squeezed out. And like, that's why a movie that takes time to establish its characters and like leaves them to sort of develop as, you know, like as actual human beings interacting with each other, you get what's, you know, a, a large part of what's missing. And like, that's, that's discovery. And that's a sense of like, um, just like unpredictable character types. Cause this is a movie that also explores things like class in a way that doesn't demonize anybody involved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like the differences between people who have and people who don't and the sort of like, uh, inevitable insensitivity of people who have Mm -hmm. and like how like they can still find the humanity shared between them, like between their differences. And like, it's such a, it's such a careful humanistic examination of that 
divide has become like kind of overly simplified, I think, in a lot of sort of rushed, distracted movies. People are like compliment Marvel for the sort of machine that they have, the sort of, you know, they've got this system in place. So, you know, it by design, all their movies kind of look and feel and sound the same. And, but I think ultimately it's a rushed thing where a lot of these big movies have to hit a certain date before they're released. <clears throat> yeah. And they, the, and because everything is streamlined and digital uh, effects help in theory, uh, you, you don't have to do as much in camera. That's the sort of seems to be a lot of the, we'll fix it in post mentality. That's become modern yeah. big budget filmmaking. And a lot of it is scheduling. They've got a lot of people in these movies that are demanded other places. You know, they, they, they have to make them in as quick as and efficiently as possible. That's like, I can respect that on a, on a, just a level of like, Hey, they've got a system in place and that works. But I do think that's why a lot of those movies end up feeling the same where Roma was apparently totally the opposite. Uh, I think he took so many days to shoot the film that, that Emmanuel Lubezki, his, his DP and basically all his other movies, um, Oscar winner, uh, for, for stuff like gravity and the revenant, he couldn't, he ended up not making the movie with Quaron, which, you know, was worrisome to me because I love seeing them work together um, before I saw it. But Quaron took on uh, director of photography duties himself for this one, just because like he, I think he just knew that he needed the time to, to make it right, to, to give it time to breathe as a film itself. And it all just seemed like um, he was proven to be right. It's essentially Netflix put, in their faith in a really great filmmaker. And he sort of paid it back to them. I'd say many times over by not delivering something indulgent because he was allowed to, but delivering something great that he knew he could make. He just needed the opportunity. And it's really hard to fault Netflix for that part of what they represent right now in movies. Like they're just, you know, like how, how can you knock a company that made that this movie, they're responsible for this movie getting out there. Um, it's hard to find much fault in that, even though I'm sure I'll nitpick about stuff. <laughs> you'll, you'll find fault. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that, that limbo where it's like, you know, to a certain extent, streaming services have jeopardized the current state of how like theatrical movies are being experienced and released. Like they've, if they haven't jeopardized it, they've at least affected it to some degree, mm-hmm. but they are also the ones as the industry like shifts and like, you know, sort of devotes most of its energy resources and focus on making a certain type of movie that lends to a monoculture that we mention a lot. Yeah. When streaming companies like Amazon Films and Netflix like are providing the films that do act as like a a kind of refresher and a sort of like an an enlivening force, then it's like I don't know like the this is still like an unpredictable and exciting time and you know you and I will continue to want to experience these things like as immersively as possible, which is still the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like hopefully it's not just a sort of obligatory thing. They'll start to, because it's a business, they'll see the, the opportunity of people actually still being willing to like all come together and experience something that deserves to be experienced this big and like this attentively. Here, here. It should be interesting because next year they put out Scorsese's next movie, you know, and and that's going to be a big, expensive project. And um, maybe they'll see some value with this being like a test case to put out 
big auteur driven films that maybe demand more of a theatrical uh, uh, experience and um, you know, holding out hope there, but I, I can't again, just can't really be too upset when it's like, man, they, they have significantly improved their, the, the stuff that they're putting out, you know, like, and it's, it's, uh, there's all there's many reasons some of those movies didn't work out at first for Netflix or were seemed lesser than or whatever or that they were working on it like figuring out what works for them, uh, but they've just been putting their faith in great directors and um, we we continue to get some really really good ones so um, yeah I hope a lot of people can see Roma in theaters if it's possible it, it, it's like see it wherever you can I think it's so great it doesn't matter but the sound alone if you can't blast it at your house I I don't know how this movie will be as effective, you know, like that alone, the, the, the speakers need to shake at certain moments of the movie. And then the rest of the time, you just need to feel like you're in, there's no music. You're just in the, the sound, the, the, the landscape of the, you know, the, the setting of the movie. I just felt like I was in it just in this waking dream. And that's, that is an effect that's hard to get across without that kind of sound system. So but I mean, let's not underestimate our audience. Maybe they have incredibly sophisticated home sound systems. That's true. They have to be sophisticated. They listen to us, Joe. So you know. Hey. <laughs> All right, man. What do you say? Should we uh, yep. should we wrap it up? Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> Real quick. Now let me do the propers. So just chill to the next episode. This has been a uh, episode one ninety two of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, again, you can uh, rate, review, subscribe to us on the Playlist Podcast Network uh, on your podcatcher of choice, or you can find our individual episodes on theplaylist.net. Email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. That would be really lovely. Um, I'm thankful uh, to get to talk with you as always, Joe. Um, so, so, so thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>